Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or... If you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. This episode of The Rest is History on Treason in Modern Britain is sponsored by the National Archives. Enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. And Tom... We are here again at the National Archives for their amazing exhibition, Treason, People, Power and Plot. And last time we were talking about the Tudors and the medieval period. And this time we've reached a real favourite of yours. You love the the sort of 17th, 18th centuries, don't you? I do. And um, I think we're going to be kicking off with um, a subject that has already provided us with two episodes, namely the the trial of Charles I. Um, But we are actually looking some of the documents that relate to that we are it's, a, it's an amazing privilege actually to see these genuine you know the, the stuff of history without resorting completely into cliches uh, and this time we're joined by neil johnston who is absolutely top brain behind this exhibition the uh the head of the early modern um, archives here i think and neil sort of a dream of yours to see all this stuff out on public consumption oh it's really wonderful to be able to put so many aspects of the collection together because archives are you know, they're sort of abstract notions for people. What are they? Well, they're collections of records. And how do you try to explain it to people? And this collection is, is really, really remarkable. You know, where I'm from, the equivalent collection was blown up 100 years ago. So this, to me, is really, really special, being able to go back to the 1352 Act, the Treason Act, as it is, and even before that, um, as, as you can see in the exhibition, and then bring it all the way forward to the modern day. So the, the collection here in Britain is, is really, really special. It's remarkable. Well, but Neil, we, we um, just before we recorded this, you showed us um, the record of parliamentary proceedings written in late 1649, 1650, um, detailing the events of the trial of Charles I. And it's in a kind of little brown book. And on the cover, it's got the trial of the king, just in case anyone is in any doubt as to it. I mean, it is in- incredible to see the physical documents that relate to this subject that Dominic, you and I, you know, we did these two episodes on absolutely up close. I mean, how does it make you feel when you look at, you know, it, it has the column of the people who are sitting in judgment on the king. I mean, how does it make you feel to see those names written down in ink on paper? Well, if you think of the importance of that event in terms of, of legal history, in terms of political history, going and executing a monarch is an extremely rare event in any circumstances. So, I wouldn't say I wouldn't go so far to say it's quite moving, but you know it's it. You, you can feel the importance of the event nearly coming off the page. Yeah, yeah. You can see like the the journal is very very detailed. It was written by the clerks who were there during on each day during the trial of the king in the in early 1649. You can nearly feel the stress coming off the pages as the court constitutes itself from the rump of the House of Commons, and it authorizes and empowers itself to put the king on trial for treason. So, so, so could we look at it specifically in the context of treason, the act of treason that we began the, the previous episode with, 1351, 52, depending where you're coming from, it, the definition of treason is plotting against the king. Yeah. You know, not just compassing the death of the king, but imagining the death of the king. 1649, 
I mean, they're putting the king on trial. So presumably, Edward III's act is is hopeless for that because it brands them as traitors. Well, it depends on how you view sovereignty. And the Commons claims sovereignty. It also has de facto authority because it's won the two civil wars. So it reverses the previous understanding of what treason is. Legally, yes, they are acting. It's extrajudicial, let's say. What they've done is illegal. Charles doesn't recognise the court, does he? The king refuses to recognise the authority of the courts to put him on trial. And he won't plead. And you can see that the court solicitors, John Cook, is almost barracking him to enter a plea because a case cannot initiate. So the court is very, very careful to follow the procedures that would ordinarily have been followed, say, for a treason trial or a murder trial. They are very, very clear on the proceedings, but the king won't enter a plea, so the case shouldn't actually continue, but they they ignore this. But what, what law would they... I mean, what law can they bring? There is no law to bring. So... Uh, they, they claim authority. They claim that under the Treason Act, the king, by raising his banners, he levied war on the people. And the commons claimed that it was sovereign within the people and the king had lost the right to claim this. So the pages you've chosen for us, is that what they're arguing? Yes. Basically? So this is, you can see Cook and the king arguing back and forth, the king refusing to accept that he had levied war, that he had committed treason, and Cook demanding absolutely demanding that he enter the plea. But are they framing the idea of, of treason in a, a biblical context, a, a Roman context, uh, an Anglo-Saxon context? I mean, where are they getting the idea that there is a case for the king to answer from? What's the legal underpinning for that case? The 1352 Act, the idea of levying war against the king, is, what, is, is really what they're... against the people is what they're saying. And But they're, what they've tried to do is they've tried to perform this uh, sort of jump to move, to shift the centre of authority from the crown, from the person of the king to the state. And that they say, as the commons of England, they are the true representatives of the people, not the monarch. And this is how they go forward and create a republic. And that they say that they, it is the commons that is sovereign, not the king. Now, I'm not going to say it's not true, because they have the authority to do, they have defeated the royalist forces. And so it's really about power. And treason is theatre. Treason t- trials are generally theatre trials. So uh, some, like in the early modern period, the, the, the verdict is almost a foregone conclusion. So this wasn't, this was different. This was so unprecedented. It, it's, it's not that they were making it up as they were going along, but they were adapting throughout the trial. But I suppose the... Um in a way, they are the, they are the representative of the future because the idea that um, treason can be acted against a, an entire people, against a nation, is the future, isn't it? I mean, Correct. that is the understanding probably that most people have of it now. It's not specifically directed against the monarch. It's not against the person of the monarch uh, necessarily anymore. And what we see here now is this shift into a more both a more modern understanding of treason and also the beginning of the redundancy of the Treason Act as it was framed in 1352. So they have to adapt. And the commons or the rump of the the long parliament, as it was, who prosecuted the king, they weren't the first or the last power, we can say, or government, if we want to call them a government, to adapt the treason laws to their own circumstances. So just on the document, so when people come to the exhibition, what they're actually seeing is something written, not on the day, but afterwards from, from reports. Is that right? They, you write up the reports afterwards? So the clerks within the commons will have been taking notes, uh, contemporary notes as events happened, and then they will have written them up afterwards. They were instructed by the House of Commons to do this in February 1649, and it took about a year for that volume to emerge. There's two or three volumes, and they were, they're heavily disputed, but they are keenly important, and they become even more important. Well, I was about to say, so fast forward to 1658, 59, 60, when you've got so much turbulence, all the other alternatives exhaust themselves. So suddenly it becomes obvious that Charles II is, is basically the only alternative left. Is there no discussion about destroying these documents, which actually are quite incriminating? The power has shifted, you know, Cromwell dies, Oliver Cromwell dies in September 1658 and his son takes over, but he doesn't have that authority to deal with the huge competing interests within the army, the Puritans within the army, within Parliament. Parliament itself doesn't want the army dictating to civilians. The army doesn't want to be dictated to by civilians. So uh, a, a, a form of political anarchy breaks out and eventually 
the the last person who has legitimacy really to rule is Charles Stuart. He sidesteps very, very cleverly in 1660 the arguments that had been put forward in, in the 1640s that caused civil wars and the execution of his father. And as a new parliament emerges in 1660, in March and April 1660, they cannot agree on what's to happen. And an unlikely source had almost ended the Republic, which is General George Monk, who was the commander of the army in Scotland. His march on London in January, February 1660 virtually ends the Republic and a new parliament is assembled in March, it is voted for in March 1660 and it meets, the convention parliament meets in April 1660. And Monk effectively says, anybody who is not for Charles Stuart, be silent. And this gives the king, the king had been in exile for 11 years at this point, Charles Stuart, who becomes Charles II, he sends his emissary, Sir John Grenville, um, on the 1st of May 1660, he hands in what's called his Declaration of Breda. And with this document, the king sidesteps everybody. It's a very, very clever piece of politics where he, he says, I will not refight the civil wars. I'm going to make Parliament responsible for deciding who who wins and loses about land that has exchanged hands over the last decade. And that's it's a question they can't resolve. They tried to resolve it in Ireland and it goes completely wrong for um, almost three decades. But thirdly, and most importantly in many ways, he says... I will allow people to have liberty of conscience once they are not harming the kingdom. So everybody who wants to conform to the teachings of the Church of England, they seem to be happy. The Puritans seem to be happy. They think they'll be okay. Baptists and independents. So in this swoop, he sort of, he dismisses fears or grievances about him returning. But he also does something else very, very clever. He says, I will introduce an act of general pardon and indemnity and oblivion. I will indemnify people from being prosecuted for their actions in the 1640s, except for the 59 men who become known as the regicides. So that's what we have here. That's this act right here. That's the act of indemnity and oblivion. And pardon. Everybody except the 59 names on the previous document. Except, Neil, that they are not defined as regicides are they regicide cannot be a crime they're condemned specifically in the court of they are they're condemned yes. as, as traitors yes they, con- they if we go back to the, the the terms of the treason act this 1352 act they compassed and imagined the death of the king in 1649 so what the the law as it is written in front of us says those who were present on the 27th of January 1649 the day sentence was passed on Charles I and they're listed in front of us these men are now guilty of so this is this is the theme of uh, Robert Harris's uh, latest novel that's just come out about the hunt for for the regicides lots of them get is it 10 get rounded up and executed um, fairly briskly so Um, there's there's sort of there's several phases. Uh, there's a proclamation issued in June 1660 saying all regicides are to hand themselves in. Some do, some don't. Some go on the run. Some are just detained by the sergeant at arms of Parliament and the the Crown's authorities. And there's 19 trials in October. A special a special court is set up under the authority of the court, the King's Bench. And that's the one that includes Thomas Harrison, who peeps and watches, and he looked as cheerful as could be expected under the circumstances. Harrison is executed in October 1649 because he's accepted from the act of indemnity and general pardon. And also what they do is they dig up uh, they dig up Cromwell and Henry Arton, his son-in-law, and various other figures who, who've died. And, and the president of the court, John Bradshaw. Yeah, and, and, they, and they, they kind of chop their heads off and stick them on spikes and things. John Bradshaw's steel hat, Tom, <laughs> yes. that we talked about in yes, our podcast, yes. availed him naught in the end. Yes, and then two escaped to America, and yes. uh, that's the theme of Robert Harris's novel. Yeah. Yeah, that's the theme of. But they kind of get bored of it, don't they? Um, after you know, after a while, they. Um, who gets bored? The sp- um, so there's a spy master. Um, what's his name? The guy who founds Downing College. Yes. Um, and he's very treacherous, and he's the ambassador in the Hague, and he persuades three um, of the regicides to come under the under the pretense that he will pair them up with their wives, arrests them, takes them back to London, and people are revolted essentially by the um by the display of execution well, I was ask about that do you think among the public at large i know it's impossible to say with any degree of certitude but do you think there was among the public at large there was a sense you know they had it coming you know what comes around goes around you know that's or, or do you think people thought that this was vindictive on the bath of charles the answer is actually both 
those right. who witnessed the executions, when you read Peeps' diaries and the diaries of others, uh, contemporary at the time in the correspondence, such was the gore of the executions in October 1660 after these trials, these treason trials, you know, the being hung, drawn and quartered, um, disemboweled, the intestines being thrown onto a, a barbecue for all intents, and the smell seemingly around Charing Cross was disgusting. And people who had been, the, the, the tide very quickly turns and the, yeah. the crown on the authorities had to be very, very wary of this. You know, people are having their heads chopped off. There's blood everywhere in around Charing Cross where the execution's looking down towards Banqueting House where the king has been executed. And as the yeah. regicides themselves knew that large congregations of people meeting to watch executions are potentially very dangerous. Absolutely, um, yeah. so, so on the on the, on the the issue of hanging, drawing and quartering male um, traitors... You are absolutely obsessed with no, this. No, I'm not, Dominic. And burning female traitors. When does that finish so when do people start to think okay we should deal with with traitors but we're not going to um ritually torture them to death in the way that we had been doing when does when does that as far as i'm aware peter's out in the 18th century it just becomes unpalatable for, for kind of enlightenment reasons Most certainly, it, yeah. yeah i was about to say in some ways you could argue this is a pretty extraordinary document the um the the act of indemnity and oblivion because couldn't you make the case that there is clearly a sort of a tipping point after which it no longer is really the done thing to execute your enemies, you know, to, to accuse your enemies of being traitors. There's a move towards, I guess, I know this is very anachronistic, but a more pluralistic kind of political arena where ministries rise and fall, where your opponents may be a first of all, they go into exile like Bolingbroke did um, at the end of the reign of Queen Anne. But he then comes back. He's not beheaded. There's a sort of move away from... Well, Spectacular violence, but I also the idea of you know His Majesty's loyal opposition. I suppose right. comes in. Well, yeah, you get kind of competing parties. All the, so in I that, think it, that's it's, we're, we're maybe getting slightly ahead of ourselves, but just by a couple of decades. Right at, at this point, the king knows he has to limit very, very clearly. Yeah. Charles is say, and Charles is much. I would say he's much more politically astute than his father. He's less dogmatic. Well, he could be less astute, right? I mean. Well, yeah, he's less dogmatic than his father. Yeah, and that's certainly true. And he's probably more wily. Um, and he doesn't stand on ceremony the way his father did. So he was willing, uh, we presume, you know, the king didn't write these things down, but we presume he was willing to accept a limited form of retribution. Because how does someone whose father has been executed and been forced into exile for over a decade, how do they respond? And this is how he responds. He, he never would have been uh, effectively summoned back if he had said, I'm coming in with an army. And what army would have fought for him necessarily too? So it's... At the end of his reign, we see the emergence of proto-political parties. Yeah. Um, uh, the Whigs and the Tories. But this has got a treason connection too, right? Oh, certainly does. So you've got a document here. I think this is, of all your documents, this is one of my absolute favourites. Because it's one of, I mean, we haven't covered this in the rest of his history. We touched on as much as we should have. Oats. Because it is one of the great stories in all Which English history. Which, of course, relates to the porridge murderer that we mentioned in the... Porridge. Yes, so, so porridge, oats uh, is very much a theme, theme. So unexpected theme. Talk to us about the Popish plot. Popish plot is this remarkable episode or event in in English and British and Irish history, whereby this man, Titus Oates, concocts a series of lies about Jesuits, about Catholics. It's his macabre fantasy, really, that it's emerges. It's kind of seven, late 17th century QAnon, perhaps. Conspiracy, most certainly, yeah. You know, it's hard to, um, it's hard to get your head around it. Oates is, Oates had tried to train um, at Cambridge in the Church of England, he he was thrown out of Cambridge. He lies and says that he was a he he was successful and he graduated and he's given a living in the Church of England. He's thrown out of that. He has to run away to uh, he becomes chaplain to the garrison at Tangier in the 1670s. He's thrown out of there. He then fought, he's sent back. He arrives back in London, destitute, and he falls in with uh, Catholics in London and he starts to learn about the activities of the Jesuits. He's sent then by the provincial of the Jesuits to train as a Catholic priest. To, first of all, to Spain, to Salamanca. He's thrown out of there. His behavior is terrible. He's no Latin. He keeps getting drunk. He's fighting with people. He's... Um, <laughs> he, he's Very father time. Yeah, <laughs> if you want to put it that way, yes. He's drinking the toilet duck. And he comes back to England, and then he's sent to northern France to train again. He This, this falls apart, and the, the, the principals in the college in Saint-Omer, northern France say, gone. 
He arrives back in London. Again, he's destitute, but what he actually has now is just enough knowledge of what may be seen as a Catholic conspiracy, the infrastructure of the Jesuits in London. So when we look back to the, the Popish plot and the, the plots against Elizabeth's reign, these Reformation, counter-Reformation plots that were happening in the 16th and very early 17th centuries, this is kind of, this revives all that, this fear of encirclement. But it also happens during a time when Charles II's religious policies, which were never properly determined after the Restoration, rise again because his brother, James, the Duke of York, is outed effectively from the mid-1670s as a Catholic. And the Test Act in 1673 demanded that everybody who holds office in England must take communion within the Church of England, and he refuses to. So all of a sudden, there's a crisis at the, the top of government because a Catholic may be about to succeed. So Oates's concoctions, his lies, his fabrications, his conspiracy theories are brought to the fore by men who want to embarrass Charles II and exclude his brother James from the succession. And it's the Popish plot is part of a larger crisis that we call the exclusion crisis. And so what's this document here? So this is an amazing kind of book. It's, it's like a, again, it's like a massive journal, um, handwritten, yep. uh, ink on parchment. Again. Ink on paper. This is ink paper. On paper. This yep. is paper. Um, and what is it? So Oates is summoned. He brings his allegations. He has them notarized and he brings them to the attention of the Privy Council. The king himself kind of dismisses it. Charles says, no, this is nonsense. But he, he asks his chief minister, the Earl of Danby, to investigate. Danby can't turn up anything, but still they are worried that it might be true. So Oates himself is brought before Privy Council at the end of September 1678 and into October when he unleashes his allegations and the ministers and the councillors who really, to be honest with should have known better, run with this because as I say, he has just enough knowledge and he right. makes allegations against Jesuits who he knows. The kind of, the cornerstone of the Popish plot is... And presumably people want to believe this. Yes. I mean, you do. know, he's, yes. he's pushing against an open door in yeah. terms of... And he makes allegations that a conspiracy was hatched in May 1678 at the White Horse Tavern on the Strand and that Jesuits were there, Louis XIV, uh, the French king who uh, Charles II is effectively in league with now, Louis has, is going to pay for an invasion force to overthrow the Protestant succession and place James on the throne. That's the corner of it. Yeah. It's nonsense. But he gets a couple of things right by fluke or whatever, doesn't he? Two things in particular. So he makes all these allegations and the notebook is, it's the clerk for the Privy Council trying to keep track of the allegations that are being made and those who are being detained and arrested on charges of treason. And it runs for 70 or 80 pages of warrants are issued for so-and-so's arrest. But the two things that Oates, I'm not going to say gets right, but he gets lucky with. Right. The first one is Edward Coleman. Edward Coleman was in James's entourage and he had corresponded in 1673 and 74 with one of Louis XIV's confessors, Monsieur Le Chasse, his name was. Coleman is detained. An order goes out to search for his papers. And in these papers, we see Coleman saying, I could facilitate the overthrow of the Protestant crown. Oh, my God. Yes. Right. So, so that, that is lucky for us, right? I guess a stuck clock. Exactly. Tells, it, tells the right time. Yeah, I suppose it's like, to, to give you a parallel, it's like a 1950s McCarthyite saying that a hundred members of the State Department are communists, and one of them turns out is a fellow traveller, you know, that's not insight, that's just pure, pure luck pure luck and coincidence, That's I guess. what happens here, and what we see happening is um, everything else seems to fall into place then for uh, Oates, and he is sort of emboldened by this, and he makes more and more outlandish accusations. The second thing that happens is that Justice Berry, who notarised the initial allegations, he's found dead and it's still an unexplained murder. So all of a sudden Oates becomes the saviour of Protestant England and the justice becomes a martyr from Protestant England. We also get the, the Popish got moving from the private political arena, from the private arena into the political parliament. The House of Commons and the House of Lords starts to champion Oates and Oates is all of a sudden has an audience of the most powerful people in the realm. Yeah. And this book is the clerks in the council. And it's one of the wonders of this archive because we have all the major papers like the, the Acts of, of Parliament and whatnot. But we also have the official papers of the, the men who worked for the government. And we, it's how we try to rebuild this story. But to put, to, put, to, to put this on the sort of biggest stage of all, you could argue that from, for example, that book, 
we get politics because the Whigs and Tories, you know, a lot of historians would trace them back to the arguments following the Popish plot about if James, Duke of York, should be excluded from the throne. Correct. The succession crisis that happens as they try to embarrass the king and as Shaftesbury, the Earl of Shaftesbury, Anthony Ashley Cooper, the Earl of Shaftesbury, he champions Oates. Now, the trials proceed from late 1678. Oates moves from the political arena into the legal arena and his story really falls apart then. Mm -hmm. And we can see the Lord Chief Justice of the Court of King's Bench and the legal officials nearly aiding and assisting him in in corroborating these stories, these allegations against the, 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 these Catholics, these Jesuits, who are really not guilty of treason. But they're charged, they're condemned, and they're executed. And the, those records all exist within, within the collection, so but, we can but, follow this trial, these trials. But it, it, it becomes publicly apparent that Oates is a liar. I mean, he ends up in the pillory, doesn't he? And we have trial by propaganda here. He does eventually. Yeah, he, he perjures himself and James pursues so, him. So, so in the long run, I mean, does that leave people embarrassed? Do they feel, oh, God, we believed all this rubbish? And does that have a kind of knock-on effect on the readiness to believe accusations of, of treason and perhaps undermine the very concept of treason, do you think, through the late 17th going into the 18th century? Well, it certainly emboldens Charles II and it consolidates his position. And in reality, it emboldens James's position too. They ride this out. As he becomes James II, his own political uh, mistakes, let's say, continue to revive these fears of, of Catholic threats. And uh, he is undone by his own government and he's forced into exile. But he's not called a traitor, right? James II is not called a traitor when he leaves. He's just... It, the, the fiction is created that he had fled his... Uh, well, he'd thrown away the Great Seal. Right, hadn't abandoned he? his and post. that's yeah, one of the effectively. things that you're not allowed to do. I mean, that's the treason that under the, um, under the original Treason Act. That's one you're not of allowed the, to put seals in the river. You're not allowed to put seals in the river, no. Um, so I don't know whether that had any... It never needed to, because he was gone. You know, gone from England, not gone from, let's say, Ireland, where we, we know what happened there, and the consequences of uh, the, the fighting that happened in Ireland that still permeates to this day. Well, but perhaps um, I think we should have a break at this point, but when we come back, we could look at the implications of the Treason Act for, for Ireland, but also um, for the, the, uh, the colonies um, in North America and the terrible treasonous acti activity that breaks out there towards the end of the 18th century. So we will see you back very soon. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking about all kinds of treasonous behaviour. And Tom, we are reaching perhaps the worst episode. The most shocking example. Treachery <laughs> in and, and treachery. And it's not just treachery. It's treachery and tax evasion, I think we can safely say. <laughs> Terrible behaviour. In, in British history. Because you have here, um, Neil. So Neil is with us from the National Archives talking about their amazing exhibition. You have here a copy of the ultimate treasonous document, which is, of course, the Declaration of Independence. There it is right in front of you. It's, um, we, it's, again, it's another one of these uh, real turning points in the exhibition as we were thinking about how we would uh, draw in material from the 18th century. Um, we're further moving the story along by thinking about how we're moving away from the person, again, of the monarch under the Treason Act and into the, the state. So we can see here in the... The, the document is obviously 1776, but we have wonderful materials that surround it from the, the mid to late 18th century that show us the change in society that is emerging, these Enlightenment 
ideas, uh, these ideas of independence, of moving away from monarchy, of moving, of self-determination. And we know that the Americans, uh, the colonists, let's call them, initially in the 17. 50s and 1760s, their disgruntlement was, was with taxation, with not being not having representation at Westminster, but yeah, taxes were being levied on them, and so it was. So these were economic frustrations rather than republican ideas, and it was the escalation of this argument between the crown and the colonists over who had the right to self determination. The Americans arguing that they should be allowed tax themselves, they should be allowed justice. It really got difficult when the Crown legislated that anybody who was deemed to be a traitor in the Americas should be brought to England for trial. The Americans arguing that they should be, have trial by their peers. The colonists arguing but just this. Just so. be absolutely clear the provisions of the 1351 Act of Treason apply in British North America. So when they take a stand against their rightful king it's in the charters the charters that created the colonies yes but when they declare independence then suddenly people who are keeping loyal to the king are becoming the traitors so it's a kind of replay of what happens when richard the second gets deposed and suddenly people who've been loyal to richard the second are the traitors and are condemned as such by henry the fourth and you're seeing the same kind of drama playing out at the end of the 18th century but on a, an atlantic scale the americans legislate for it and they incorporate the Treason Act into the, their constitution. And that's, it's the the only, that's the only criminal law in the, in the, um, in the, in, in the US founding document, isn't that's it? That's right. The Treason Act is the only criminal yeah. law at, at the dawn of the United States. Correct. But they say it's not against the monarch. You're, you, it's, they, they rephrase it to be levying war against the republic. I think that's the term they use. Right. And so do you think that's a slight... And is there a... Can we trace a thread from the trial of Charles I? Most certainly. They directly reference it. In, right. You know, and they say that Parliament uh, imposed itself on the monarch and we're going to do the same. But again, I mean, we've, we, we compared um, the Treason Act, the original Treason Act to Magna Carta. And I guess it's, it's faintly similar the way that Magna Carta underpins a lot of um, American constitutional legal understanding the Treason Act presumably is playing the same. It's a kind of disguised foundation stone for how the American state comes to define and um, oppose what it calls treason. Well, it's less prominent, but yes, things like, you know, the, the continuation of the idea of habeas corpus and that, um, that you can't be detained um, without just cause, for instance. You can't just be randomly detained, you know. And it's, it is the suspension of things like the, the Habeas Corpus Act in North America that caused such frustration, that caused such anger amongst the colonists. And that, but they then incorporate all these ideas into their own constitution. And so we talked about America, but I'm guessing that, that, that you as a Dubliner would have a particular interest um, in, in another fracture point of, of British, uh, the, the writ of the British treason law, which would be Ireland. Which, and as I understand it, the, the provisions of, of Edward III's Treason Act apply to, to Ireland from 1495, That's it? right, yeah, there is the Treason Act from then. So Ireland, in the, if we're talking about the late 18th century, the, the movements for determination in Ireland kind of mirror what happened in the United, what becomes the United States, and are heavily influenced then by the French Revolution, these ideas of liberty. In Ireland, there is, from the late... 1780s into the 1790s, there's this idea of some sort of self-determination. And we witnessed the propagation of ideas around not yet the creation of a republic, not initially the creation of a republic, but parliamentary reform, allowing Catholics to sit as MPs, allowing the, 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 the complete revocation of what are known as the penal laws that uh, stipulated that Catholics couldn't uh, be represented in parliament by their own peers, they had to, it was Protestant. So the complications of ascendancy Ireland, 18th century Ireland, really come to a head at the end, inspired by France, inspired by America. And men like Theobald Wolftone, they establish in October 1791 the Society for the United Irishmen. Just a month before, uh, here in London, uh, Thomas Hardy uh, establishes the London Correspondence. Not the novelist, the novelist, the, the polemicist, let's say, Thomas Hardy, and the these ideas, these radical reforming societies, uh, popular political uh, organizations that are seeking to really expand the franchise and allow much more self-determination. These, these ideas that emerge in, in America and France and then 
of course are seeping into England, but they are a huge threat to the, the British establishment. Well, well okay, but, but Thomas Hart, so Thomas Hart, he's what? He's a shoemaker, is he? Or, so so he is, um, he's brought to trial on a charge of treason. But basically, I mean, basically, he's just arguing for radical change, isn't he? I mean, he's not, he's not arguing for the overthrow of the monarchy. But Tom, the or, arguments against that, not the counter-argument, would be it's taking place at a time of tremendous international... Sure. You know, turmoil. Sure, sure. So in other but, words, those ideas are identified with the, the enemy that Britain is fighting. Yeah, I, 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 I absolutely see that. I mean, I see why, uh, why the charge is brought against him. But the, the fact remains that in the end, he gets acquitted, doesn't he? Well, you need to un- rewind a little bit. And Hardy and his associates in the reforming societies, as they were known, were very, very careful not to Called commit the treason. In, in, they, weren't, yeah. they, they didn't commit treasonous acts. But they right. did commit seditious acts. So they were encouraging sort of a rebellion against authority. So that's a good question. Just to, to focus in on that for a second. Is there a point, I guess this would be the point, that treason and sedition slightly become muddled in Most the public certainly. mind? Yeah. Hardy is accused of not directly threatening the person of the king, but he wants to um, radically reform parliament. The charge against him is that this will inevitably lead to the death of the king. So his actions yeah, right. are indirectly treasonous. And right. of course, it completely yeah. falls apart in court. Which is why he doesn't win. Yeah. Which, yeah. Well, he does win. Sorry, sorry. Yes. Yes, this is why the, why the prosecution doesn't win. Correct. Yeah. So it falls apart. Now, they do legislate subsequently to, to they re-update the treason laws again. Not the Treason Act of 1352 Act, but they do, the government does update treason laws to uh, try to... Uh, prevent them losing cases like that again. But the, the ideas are out there now and in the, across the 1790s. The, the thing that makes it very, very difficult for Payne and his colleagues is, of course, war breaking out with France in 1793. So all of a sudden, the ideas they're propagating are in support of an enemy state. Yeah, the enemy's ideas, yes. basically. Just uh, on, on the documents, you've got this sort of, I don't know, it's like a kind of cardboard tray full of stuff. Is that the historian's term, stuff? The cardboard tray full of stuff is the technical, I think technical you find it's a technical, it's an archival term, isn't it, yeah. Sir Neil? Um, so, um, so these are the papers, these are all the trial papers. These is, this the is the evidence that was stuff. being gathered against Hardy, and we can see the Treasury solicitor underlining what they believe to be the treasonous or most certainly the seditious paragraphs in Thomas Paine's Rights of Man, and which is which is in this pile in front of us, and these are read out, and the paper, these are the, the correspondence of the London Corresponding Society, and they're read out full. Of the, the trial takes several days, yeah. uh, which is m- longer than a treason trial usually takes at the time. But we're starting to see the vague emergence of the modern conception of the rule of law. So while they flood the court with what they claim are what the, the Attorney General claims are treasonous actions and treasonous words, they're not and the case does fall apart, but they try to uh, overwhelm nearly the, the court. But, but in Ireland it's different, because there you have the, the further dimension of an independence campaign. So in 1798, where you have Irish Rebellion, you have um, Lord Edward Fitzgerald, mm-hmm. who I gather is the last person to, to, to be attainted. That's right. The, so it's, it's a posthumous act of attainment, isn't it? The goals didn't start out that way. As I say, initially it was the idea for parliamentary reform, but the leaders of the United Irishmen were politically neutered in the mid-1790s. And Tone is accused of treason. The charges, the, the, government, the government in Dublin can't make the charges stick, but he's allowed to go into exile. He goes to the United States in the hope of encouraging American support for an, an Irish movement. Um, what becomes a Republican movement. It's not initially, but it, 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 this is what it becomes. And Tone is deeply disappointed in what he sees as the mercantilism of the Americans. He's deeply disappointed in George Washington himself and Jefferson. So he goes to France and he seeks help from Britain's other enemy, Napoleon Bonaparte at this point. And we find uh, Tone seeking and pleading. He becomes, a, a, he, he becomes an officer in the French army he, he's given French citizenship and he's hoping... I mean, that is, from the standards of London, pretty treasonous behaviour. Most certainly, yeah, most certainly. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair. And he's... Uh, it's, it's almost one in the eye. Yeah. And he um, is trying to secure a French invasion force. At the same time, the United, Irish, the United Irishmen in Ireland has become a secret organisation and it's trying to create an underground movement that when the French arrive, there will be... Uh, the British government will be overthrown and Ireland will become a republic, a self-determining republic. And Tone's, Tone is caught by, he's caught on the hop effectively in the summer of 1798 when the rebellion does break out, um, led by 
Fitzgerald and his accomplices in the United Irishmen. But it's, it's quickly quashed. Um, the French had tried to invade in seven, at the end of 1796, but they couldn't land. Um, in December 1796, a fleet had been sent from Brest to land at Bantry Bay, but the, sto- the seas were too high, the storm- storms were too big, so the, the fleet had to abandon, and the British then made every effort to ensure that a, a fleet couldn't sail directly to Ireland again uh, without being known about, and that, the, as I say, the United Irishmen had been neutered as a political organisation. So could I, uh, just on the, th- the theme of, of um, republicanism, I mean, to, to argue for a republic is, by definition, I guess, to be hostile to a monarchy and therefore inherently treasonous. At what point does arguing for a republic cease to be seen as treasonous by the government? It doesn't really. You know, and if we look at 1916, the men who fought, men and women who fought in the 1960s to rising in 1916, they're also... But, that, but, but, but I'm not talking just specifically in the Irish context, more generally in the British context. But Tom, in the reign of Queen Victoria, there are lots there, of There's a lot of Republicans. Presumably anyone who's arguing for a republic in the reign of Queen Victoria, say, is committing treason, aren't they? Uh, under the wording of the Act, yes. But it's, 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 it's much more difficult to prosecute. So the, the Crown shies away, away from it in many ways. Not, not entirely, but it's, these ideas are out there now. There's so many people. So there's an acceptance that basically the, the, it's not going to... It's, it's simple practicality that there's so many people believe in the Republic now, in Republicanism now, that it's simply, there's, there's no way you can prosecute everybody who believes that. To a point, yes. And also the loyalism in, in Britain, loyalty to the Crown is also a hugely powerful political, uh, hugely powerful political force. So it's, it's, it's a real dichotomy. You know, and it, if we look at the, the risings that happen, or the attempted risings, and the conspiracies, the Cato Street conspiracy, the Newport Rising, um, 1848 in France, and then how it spills over into, into Britain, these fears of monarchical overthrow, they don't go away, and people are prosecuted. But, and, but it, it continues to, to be propagated by the ideas of the, the French Revolution and by Paine and by Hardy. And but there's a general sense that the, the, the act of treason, although it remains on the statute book, is becoming, it's too kind of nebulous a thing to, to, to hold legal water. And is that why over the course of the 20th century, even against the backdrop of growing republicanism, of Ireland becoming independent and so on, that you see the the um, the act of treason used less and less, and I'm right that the very last person to be executed for treason in Britain is William Joyce, better known as Lord Haw Haw. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So what's about what's uh, and that is done essentially on a legal technicality, isn't it? Because it turns out he's not even a British citizen. So Joyce was born in Brooklyn, but he falsified documents to get a British passport. So this was how the court. In taking out a passport, you are claiming allegiance to the crown. And we should, we should just say, for those who don't know about him, that he, he goes to Nazi Germany and he broadcasts to Britain from Germany throughout the war. And so when he's captured after the war, it looks a kind of open and shut case. It must have done. Well, he disputed that. He said he hadn't committed treason, but of course he had. You know, so it's it, it, the, the treason legislation, the 1352 legislation, becomes much, much harder to prosecute people under. There's also the peril for a government of conducting a trial in open court because it allows people to defend themselves yeah. and produce their own evidence under the... Because there are no bills of attainment. I mean, it's, 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 is that simply because they have become illegal? I mean, no one would, would dream of bringing an attainder against someone now. I can think of loads of people still on the, bring a bill of attainment yeah, against. I mean, is, that, is, the, is the opportunity to do that still on the statute book? Or As far as I'm aware, I think the last, you know... People like Churchill during the war, and as the tide of the war was turning during the Second World War, Churchill, they were trying to deal with the question of what on earth are we going to do with the Nazi leaders? How are we going to deal with these men if we capture them? What will we do with Hitler? What court can try Hitler? So initially it was put to Churchill that, well, we could attain him. And of course he scoffed at it. He dismissed, uh, dismissed the idea. Can, could the British Parliament attain Hitler? Yes, it could. Wow. Yeah. Wow, I think in the would... eyes of the world that might be. <laughs> yeah. So... So we've got one last document, which I know you picked out for us. So we just need to rewind a little bit from Lord Haw Haw. So in the First World War, again, from London's perspective, this looks like a real open and shut case of treason. But I'm imagining you're going to see it differently, which is why you picked it out. Um, so this is the Easter Rising, 1916. And, and obviously, as a, as a Dubliner, you've got a particular stake in this. 
I'm also a historian and I can distance myself, myself from it in some ways. But what we have in the collection that we found is the bottom half of the proclamation, the 1916 proclamation that Patrick Pierce read out from the steps of the GPO, the General Post Office on Sackville Street, what's now O'Connell Street in Dublin. And there's a wonderful story about this document in that the type had been confiscated to print the document uh, a few days before the rising was to break out. So they had to quickly get another set of type. But they only had enough to print the top half of the document and they reamed off how many copies of ever they did. And then they reset the type and printed the bottom half. And they left the type in the machine. And they ran around the corner and that was printed in Liberty Hall in Dublin right on the Liffey, the very tall building now on the Liffey. And uh, when the British forces resecured Dublin a few days later, they go into Liberty Hall and they find the printing press that the 1916 proclamation was uh, produced on and they produce uh, several more copies and that, that ended up in Sean McDermott's court-martial. So martial law is imposed upon Ireland after the Easter Rising breaks out, which is why the, the rebels, the leaders, as they were, are tried by court-martial. And they're, they're uh, tried and executed in secret as opposed to giving them an opportunity to... Uh, air their views in public or their raison d'etre or their reasons for rebelling and the papers there you can see in front of you are from the courts martial that were conducted against the rebel leaders. So these are the official records. Most certainly, yeah. And the handwriting so some of them are typed and there's handwriting scribbled on this one that you've got to open at. So what's the handwriting all about? The, the, the writing is just, you know, the, the, the court the court-martial gathering evidence as quickly as it can and drawing in all the intelligence reports that had been produced in the months and years subsequent um, uh, I mean previous and um, they're being laid out for, right. the, for the court yeah. so to overwhelmingly prove guilt yeah I mean no one we wouldn't I mean no one normally no, no reasonably sane person would think of this as a case of treason now I suppose would they well the, this is something that we see certainly with those who had rebelled in Ireland they see themselves as fighting a war that they weren't loyal to the crown so they weren't committing treason. They were seeking independence. So, I mean, one case that I do know, I mean, in 1981, the Queen is doing the Trooping of the Colour and a man comes out of the crowd and fires six blank bullets at her. And he is charged with treason, isn't he? Because, and that is presumably because he is directly targeting the figure of the monarch. So in a way, we're going back to the medieval understanding that actually treason laws can be applied when... Um, when, when the subjects of a monarch are, are, are targeting the person of the monarch. Do if they're charged true? under the 1352 legislation, yeah. But otherwise, it's too cumbersome a mechanism to apply. It's nebulous. It's not guaranteed to return uh, a verdict of guilt. And there is also other legislation that can be used at this point. So the, the Crown doesn't... Can I ask you a question? You may, you may not want to answer this question, but the, right at the beginning of this... Um, uh, of these two episodes, I read um, from uh, an article uh, the, the government is planning to to, to refine and, ref and reframe the treason law. Do you think that uh, the treason law is redeemable, that it can be changed adequately? Or is that not a question that you can answer? I wouldn't feel I'm qualified to answer it. What I can say, it won't be the first time that a government has tried to um, not amend the original law, but update the terms in which a government makes it useful to them. So we, we see it throughout the century, like this act sitting here right in front of me. You know, they are... That's the, um, the, the Act of the Indemnity. The Act of Indemnity, brought and in by the, Charles II. Yeah, the Act of... There is a law that emerges in 1661 which redefines treason that says you cannot even seek to harm the person of the King Charles II. So governments throughout the centuries really have, have tried to do this, um, update the law to the circumstances of the time. Neil, this has been absolutely fascinating. And so many, I mean, Tom, you and I were looking at the documents yeah, um, before, we, before we started recording. And it's, it's an amazing privilege to be able to look at the sort of, you know, the, the handwriting on the parchment or the paper um, and the, the popish plot or whatever. Now, when we entered the previous episode, we asked Ewan to identify one person whom he would save and one case of treason, which, you know, he would definitely be the hanging judge. So it would be remiss of us not to ask you the same question, Neil. 
I can tell you who I get rid of. Who would you get rid Oliver of? Oliver Cromwell, done. Bang, gone. He's yeah. not even on trial. What well, are you talking about? You know, well, you dig him up. Yeah, dig him, dig him up. up. This is yeah. shocking. Stick his head on, bridge, on, uh, yeah. on London Bridge. In terms of saving, yeah. actually, I, I do think I know who I would save. And in 1916, the, some men went into battle intending to die. The leaders, the signatories of the 1916 proclamation, they all expected to die should they lose. Yeah. But... The president of the proclaimed republic, Patrick Pierce, his brother Willie was executed, tried and executed, and he probably shouldn't have been. So I would save Willie Pierce. Why would you say why him and not the others? Because he was. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, he was very junior. Okay. He just had the I wrong surname. You've only allowed him one. I haven't. Well, I have only allowed him no. one. I mean, I'm so shocked by that Cromwell thing. <laughs> I'm, I, I can barely bring myself to, but I will do it because I'm a professional. I will tell people this is a brilliant exhibition. Neil, you've done a fantastic um, tour for us. The Cromwellian heresy aside. Um, so, Tom, this is at the National Archives, isn't it? It's from the 5th of November. Yeah, what other date could it be? 2022, obviously. Um, it's an amazing to see all these documents. Tom, is it? does it cost any money to go to this exhibition? Do you know, Dominic, it costs zero pounds. Do I need to book beforehand? You do not need to book. Well, fantastic. So, people, yeah, and Dominic, is there yeah. a book that goes with the exhibition? Do you know there's a website? There is a website, nationalarchives.gov.uk slash treason. But more excitingly, there is a book. Uh, his, are you in this book, Neil? I wrote the book. I co-wrote it. Oh, gee. Are you talking about Cromwell in it? <laughs> he gets a mention, yeah. If, if uh, you Dominic, can... Dominic, I, I, I read it and... It's absolutely fine. Does he? He behaves himself. Yeah. Great. Well, so the book has the Tom Holland seal of approval for what that's worth. Uh, it's called History of Treason, the bloody history of Britain through the stories of its most notorious traitors. The exhibition, it's running till the end of the year, beyond? It runs until April. Oh, my God. There's, is there any excuse for people to miss it? I don't think so. It's really good. It shows off the sort of the breadth and the wealth and the depth of the collections here at the National Archive. So do come along and see. We've done our best to interpret it for you and uh, bring you on the journey, the journey of treason across the centuries from the 1352 Act onwards. Tom, it would be treason to miss Not it. Not to come. It, it would be. And on that bombshell. <laughs> thank you, Neil. Thank you to the National Archives for having us and thank you for listening. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.